Welcome to Lifeside Beat. My name is Karan Nayak, the host of today's episode. I'm joined in conversation by Alex Sapir. Alex received his BA in economics from Franklin and Marshall College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. After roles at GSK and ZS Associates, Alex spent a decade at United Therapeutics where he served as the Executive Vice President for Marketing and Sales. During his tenure, the company grew from a one-product company generating $100 million in annual revenue to a five-product company generating $1.6 billion annually. After his time at United, he joined Dovo Pharmaceuticals as CEO, where he took the company public through an initial public offering raising $160 million. He then moved on to Reviral, where he also served as CEO and successfully led the company to an acquisition by Pfizer for over $500 million. He currently serves as a faculty lecturer at the Wharton School within the Healthcare Management Program. Please join me for this wonderful conversation about navigating leadership roles in biotech, scaling companies with great science at their core, and thinking about M&A and fundraising in this industry. Thanks so much for joining us here on LifeSide Beat, Alex. Really happy to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. We always like to start with a bit of an icebreaker around where you grew up and what you wanted to be when you grew up. So I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, spent the first first 18 years of my life there. One of the reasons that brought us to Baltimore is my father was a physician at Hopkins for many years on the faculty there. And I knew that healthcare was something that interested me, but the fact that I wasn't able to make it past intro to chemistry told me I probably would wind up more on the business side of healthcare than as opposed to the science side of healthcare like my father. Got it. That's certainly fair. Moving on to undergrad, how did you decide what to study? Yeah, so I went to a very small liberal arts school in in Pennsylvania, and I ended up studying economics. I think uh, I liked economics because uh, it's not something that I had much exposure to, but I just liked the sort of, you know, the the, the logical way to sort of think about markets and 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 how markets behave it's not always to say that, that markets behave in a in a rational fashion as we uh, as we know from being in the real world but i think just understanding markets more from the rational perspective i i, I was just drawn to that as as an undergrad which is why i decided to to major in in economics so i know you started your career off at gsk would love to hear about your experience in big pharma and how that started your career in life sciences. Sure, sure, absolutely. So what GSK provided me was that entree into the business side of healthcare. I think what attracted the what attracted me most to the opportunity at GSK was it was a four uh, it was a two year four rotation program. So every six months you rotated to a different part of the business. So I spent six months in their consumer products marketing division, but I also spent six months on a packaging floor manufacturing samples of Tagamet for the pharmaceutical sales force that was marketing the product at the time. Um, And I think that just gave me a very broad exposure to an industry that, quite frankly, I knew very little about. Um, but coming out of that program, I think what I found most the most interesting facet of the business was the commercial side of the business, which is where I then decided to focus pretty much the remainder of my five years at GSK prior to going back 
to, to business school. So I spent a total of two years in the training program, five year, years in various sort of commercial and strategic roles, then went back to business school. And then after that is when I went and joined ZS Associates, a healthcare consulting firm specializing in commercial strategy consulting for pharma and biotech companies. On that note, was hoping you could touch a bit on your time during business school and how you evaluated opportunities before landing at ZS. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could come up with a, with a brilliant answer as to why I chose consulting, but to be candid with you, uh, I went to a school where a lot of people decided to go into consulting. Um, in addition to banking, I knew less about banking that I did about consulting, and I knew very little about what consultants had actually did. But looking around and seeing all these people who I had a pr profound amount of respect for, I thought, well, if they all think consulting is a good field, then then it, it, there must be something that's really exciting about it. And I did it for, I would say that I lasted in consulting for about two and a half years um, and, and didn't didn't enjoy it. Um, did not enjoy the consulting aspect of being a consultant. I think the intellectual curiosity and trying to figure out problems, I think what I really found lacking, at least for me, was the operational side of being able to execute on that strategy once that strategy has been formed, which I think ZS does a, does a remarkable job at. So I just remember very vividly on final pitch days and Everybody would just be elated at how well the pitch went. And I felt this tremendous, tremendous sense of disappointment that now, now is when the fun begins because now is when you move to the execution and the operational side. So I think it was at that point that I left ZS and realized that I definitely, A, wanted to stay in healthcare, B, wanted to stay on the operational or the, or the commercial side of healthcare. And ideally, start maybe at smaller organizations than a than a large pharma like like GSK, which is ultimately what uh, what got me to United Therapeutics, which I joined in two thousand and six. Yeah, would love to touch a bit on on that opportunity. You know how it came across the table for you, what your decision making was then, which I know you just touched on, and then you know. Obviously, there was a tremendous amount of growth at this company during the time you were there. So would love to hear some of the experiences you had there and how they sort of shaped that portion of your career. Yeah, the the decision to join United Therapeutics was was an easy one. And it was primarily driven by someone who I have just profound respect for, who's probably one of the smartest and most inspirational leaders that I've ever had the privilege of working alongside, and that's Martine Rothblatt. And she started this company uh, when she realized that her daughter suffered from a very rare and fatal disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension. Prior to that, she had absolutely no experience in healthcare. Her background was all in satellites and satellite radio. And so she founded a small little company called Sirius Satellite Radio and grew that. And we know the rest of that story. And it was around that time that satellite radio had essentially become the the, the dominant means to uh, receive music and, and essentially had overtaken terrestrial radio when everybody told her that it couldn't be done. And it was around that same time that her daughter had developed this uh, very rare disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension. And she decided to start 
this company because there was no treatment options for her daughter. And she started this company essentially to try to find better options for folks, individuals like her daughter and for the tens of thousands of other people around the world that suffer from pulmonary arterial hypertension. Yeah. No, I think that's an incredible story and clearly a leader who's had a, a track record that many, uh, many would envy. Would love to hear about, you know, the exact role you played at United, you know, alongside this growth and the movement of several assets through the clinical stages and ultimately approval, sort of how you manage this from the commercial perspective, you know, lessons you learned in sort of developing, you know, both your team members and these products alongside uh, over those years. Yeah. Yeah. So when I joined in 2006, the company had one product on the market. It was doing about $80 million at the time, but they had a very, very rich pipeline. And I think what Martine realized is that she really needed to pivot from a development stage company to a development and commercial stage company given the fact that the company had already made the decision that in the U.S. market that they would commercialize all of these assets, all of which were focused in the same rare orphan disease, pulmonary hypertension, that they would commercialize these assets on our own and not look for partners specifically in the U.S. And so I found that particularly exciting as a commercial person. So I was brought on to essentially run the commercial operations at United Therapeutics on a, on a global basis. And for a commercial person, what is there not to like about a very rich pipeline, which gives you an opportunity to launch several products over the course of five or six years, and at the same time, bring quite what were honestly life-saving treatment options to these patients that suffered from this, from this rare disease. Um, we stayed there. I stayed there for 10 years, and over the course of that 10 years, we launched four additional products, three of which were focused in rare orphan diseases, one of which was an oncology product focused in a very rare pediatric cancer. And over that course of that 10 years, we took the company from a one year, from sorry, from a one product company doing $80 million to a five product company doing 1.6 billion over uh, um, annually. Clearly the company underwent a tremendous amount of growth during your time there. We'd love to talk about some of the growing pains as you moved from an earlier nascent stage biotech company and started to build out you know, geographically with a growing pipeline, growing revenue. What were some of those challenges and lessons learned? Yeah, I, I, I mean, to me, and, and we've talked a lot about this in the class that I'm currently teaching at, at Wharton because we've been talking about a lot of companies and the decision that the company makes to either commercialize the drugs on their own or look to find partners to commercialize those assets. And, and there is no one right or wrong answer. Both decisions are um, have their inherent trade-offs. I would say one of the biggest lessons is the importance as a small biotech to spend a very um, high amount of time thinking about the best strategy to chart for your company, whether it's to commercialize the drugs on your own or to look to find partners. Commercialize it on your own, as we know in development, but also commercialization takes a tremendous amount 
of of capital, and yet you retain much greater portion of the value of those assets as they become commercialized. Partnering has the benefits of bringing in early upfront non-dilutive capital that you can continue to invest in R&D, but obviously the trade-off of that is that you give up a lot of that upside, but probably more importantly, you give up some of that control um, to another company that may, over a course of several years, have a change in priorities about what their therapeutic focus may be. And we studied the, you know, we studied the Mankind Corporation case study uh, just this past week, and Mankind made the decision to outlicense their drug, Afreza, to Sanofi. All this is obviously public information. And the drug didn't perform as well as people had expected, and a new leader came into Sanofi and made the decision after 11 months of that partnership that they were going to terminate the agreement. And with that termination, the stock for mankind uh, went into the tank. It was trading less than a dollar. They weren't able to secure any other partnerships because of the simple fact that a big name diabetes company like Sanofi had walked away from it. And, And it was a really, really challenging time. For, uh, for for mankind. On the flip side, we think about United Therapeutics that took a very different approach in the U.S. and decided very early on that they were going to commercialize these assets uh, without partnerships. And that takes a tremendous amount of, of, of capital. And it takes a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, appetite for risk as well, because we know that most biotech companies don't do all that well in their, in their first launch. So I think it's really just sort of... Um, appreciating what the important trade-offs of, of that decision is, spending a, a significant amount of time thinking through that. But then once that strategy has been decided upon by the leadership, then it's full steam ahead and it's, and it's no looking back. And I think that um, certainly United Therapeutics made that decision to commercialize them on their own. And they're now a company that's generating $2.2 billion in, in revenues, uh, saving millions of, uh, or at least tens of thousands of patients' lives uh, every year uh, with no royalties being paid out to anyone because they they decided to commercialize these drugs um, on their own. And with a $12 billion market cap, that was clearly the the, the right strategy in, uh, in, in, in hindsight. Absolutely. You know, it in hearing that that story, we can tell that you know you were there alongside a lot of the the growth that was happening, but then ultimately de- decided to to move on. So I was curious, sort of what informed that thinking of looking for a new challenge, you know, at it while being at an entity that had started to establish itself as a as a fairly large player with a lot of momentum. Sort of what led yeah. to something new. Yeah. <laughs> It's a it's it's a great question and 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 United Therapeutics I I think back on my time at United Therapeutics uh, so fondly those ten years and all that we did for patients are some of the fondest ten years that I that I can recall in my thirty year plus career in 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 pharma and biotech second only to the job that I have now which is to teach students at the Wharton School who are all smarter than I am what what it is to be successful in from in biotech. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, at, at the at the 10 year mark, I said I had accomplished a lot. I could have easily stayed. I, I don't think I would have found it nearly as energizing and as exciting. 
as the first 10 years. And yes, while it was certainly comforting to think that I could stay there and continue to have a good career or continue to be able to provide for my family, um, there was sort of an element of sort of the fear of the unknown and the, and the, and the, and the, yeah, it was really the fear of the unknown that in some perverse way sort of attracted me to say, I don't know what else is out there, but I'm excited and scared at the same time to see what that is. And so in June of 2016 is when I decided to leave United Therapeutics and take the rest of the year off and, and, and not really sure what was in store for me after that, but knew there was going to be sort of a lot of opportunities and didn't know at the time whether I was making the right decision or I was making a, a, a huge career mistake. But I think for me, it was just, it's the old adage, sort of do something every day that do something every day that scares you. And at the point in which you're feeling like you've sort of tapped out on the learning, um, it's time to do something that, that scares you that may be a little bit more uncertain and that accompanies with it a lot of anxiety. But typically when people make that decision for those reasons, it, it usually works out. And lucky for me, it uh, did work out. And I found a wonderful opportunity to become employee number one at a, at a biotech company and early or late 2016 that was just getting started. And that was Dover Pharmaceuticals that you mentioned. Fantastic. Yeah, I would love to dive into sort of what the company was when you joined, sort of how you thought about it at this very early stage and you know what those steps looked like. I think many of our audience is, is interested in some of this earlier stage commercialization of really breakthrough science. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so when I joined Dova, uh, I was employee number one. It was a private venture-backed company that had a very one single late stage asset that had potential multiple indications after the first indication. This was a product that Dova had licensed from Azi Pharmaceuticals for the treatment of uh, patients with chronic liver disease who develop thrombocytopenia or, or low platelet counts. I think to me was most exciting about it was the fact that it was so late stage. So I joined and I'd say three months after I joined, we read out our, our phase three trial. So it was a very sort of late stage licensing operation, uh, late stage opportunity. The thing that I found most exciting about it is it gave me an opportunity uh, to be in a CEO position and to essentially kind of replicate what United Therapeutics had done early on. And that was to make the strategic decision to raise the necessary capital to commercialize the product on our own. So, you know, during the two and a half years that I was there, we raised, uh, we took the company public. So we did an IPO. We raised about, I think, 80 or $90 million, did another secondary, raised about the same amount. And then with that $150, $160 million, we essentially built up the company to a fully integrated pharmaceutical company with uh, commercialization, sales, marketing, market access, medical affairs. Um, as well as funded some of these additional clinical trials to expand our label for several other um, several under several other indications. So it was, uh, yeah, exciting time, stressful time, first time CEO. It's always scary when you do something for the first time, but um, learned a lot, made a made a ton of mistakes uh, along the way. But in the end, I think it was a good 
outcome for investors. It was a good outcome for patients because we were able to put that product in the hands of a larger company than, than ours who ended up um, essentially sort of buying the global rights for that product, essentially acquiring the, the entire company for about uh, $900 million in sort of late 2018, early 2019. Fantastic. Wanted, wanted to touch a bit on this notion of going public. Obviously, the public markets when it pertains to biotech are a topic of pretty frequent conversation these days. But first, wanted to start with when you did make that decision to go public, you know, what if anything changed about your strategy from a from a management standpoint? And what were some of the changes, maybe both foreseen and unexpected um, challenges, excuse me, that, that you had to deal with? Yeah, uh, great, great, great question. So I think before I answer that, one question I get a lot is, when is the right time mm -hmm. to access the public markets? And recognizing that at any time that window can open, that window can close, that window can um, shut 50%, and it's very, very difficult to predict when uh, and how much that window will open or close, I think you access the public markets when when you can. As we know, developing and commercializing pharmaceutical and biotech products is extremely capital intensive. To develop a product, if you include opportunity costs, it's, it's over $2 billion uh, to develop a product. And that's incorporating all the trial failures, the, the products that have failed along the way through clinical trials, but it also includes the opportunity costs um, as well. So very capital intensive. So I think you raise, you, you gain access to the public markets when you can. I think in terms of how it changed my role, you know, I think I had, at the time, not enough appreciation for the number of biotech companies that were very similar to Dova. I think when you're in Dova and you're surrounded by people and you're surrounded by, this, by the excitement of bringing a new product to market, you don't sort of realize that there are probably another thousand other biotech companies that are public that are just like Dova that are all vying um, for investors' time. And I think when I realized when I realized that sort of early in my tenure at Dova, I realized that my focus needed to shift from spending a significantly more uh, greater amount of my time um, with uh, with with the with the public with the public investors because of the simple fact that there is plenty of really interesting, uh, compelling biotech companies that are out there that are essentially sort of all vying for the same amount of, of, of uh, capital that these, uh, large, these large public healthcare investors have. And so I think what it, what it really required me to do is to spend a much greater amount of my time um, with investors, either through one-on-ones, non-deal roadshows, healthcare conferences, just so I could make sure that everybody understood why Dova stood stood out amongst the thousand other small biotech companies that they could have invested in. I think what I realized is that many of the skills that I learned as a commercial executive um, in terms of how to best position a product helped me greatly in terms of how to position Dova and how to differentiate the story of Dova relative to the 
999 other biotech companies that were all vying for the same uh, the same capital from these large public healthcare investors. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful discussion around the shift that happens once you become a public entity and sort of where some of that capital is coming from. Um, and a nice tie into the previous experience you had, as you mentioned. Lastly, I know this interview wouldn't be complete without discussing your recent time at Reviral Limited, which was sold to Pfizer last year for up to $525 million in, in milestone payments. Just curious what led to this pivot towards infectious disease. And again, the question we've asked with many opportunities, sort of how you knew this was the right role to step into in the next chapter of your journey. Yeah, it's great. Again, another really, really good question, Karan. I think that I think what motivated me to join Reviral was the same thing that motivated me to join United Therapeutics in that it was a market that um, that had a tremendous degree of unmet need. And by that, I mean that at Reviral, we were developing treatment options for patients who had developed respiratory syncytial virus or, or RSV. Um, and I won't bore you with all the numbers, but I think that the number that really sort of um, got me most interested was the fact that for all the people that develop RSV infections every year, there's about 160,000 people every year who die. But of those 160,000, 60,000 are, be are below the age of one. Because these, these, these patients essentially sort of develop this infection, um, tremendous amount of mucus production. They can't breathe because they can't breathe. Um, they're obviously using a bottle so they can't feed because you need to be able to breathe through your nose as you're as you're feeding, and these patients essentially develop respiratory distress very, very quickly, um, and 60,000 kids under the age of one die. And I, I just found that to be incredible, incredibly motivating. How how cool would it be to be able to bring treatment options to a market for which there are none to at some point in the future be able to reduce that number of babies who die every year from 60,000 to a number that's, uh, that's far less than that. And that to me was really, that, that was inspiring. I think anytime you are going into a new market, something that you don't know something about, that's scary and exciting at the same time. But I think the, the, the other sort of really important piece for me was that I joined um, a team that had a tremendous amount of experience in um, anti-infective, antiviral, RSV in particular research. Um, we had some of the smartest virologists in the world on the on, on the team. And so the opportunity not only to learn a new market, but to learn it from people that were just infinitely smarter than I could ever be was also something that I that I found particularly attractive. Yeah, I, you know, certainly respect the the humility in discussing the members of your team. Would also love to hear about, you know, Having seen some of these stories play out before over the experience that we discussed, how that translated into, you know, ultimately the successful acquisition by Pfizer in your role in sort of ushering in that partnership. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been of the mindset that our goal as a company for something like RSD, for which Every year that goes by, there's another 60,000 kids that have died. Our job is to get that product to the market 
as quickly as we possibly can. And if we can do that on our own and raise the capital, given the point I mentioned before, given the capital intensity of this, if we can do that and we can be the ones to get that to the get that to the market as quickly as possible to prevent these 60,000 deaths every year, then that's the strategy that we should pursue. If on the other hand, we believe that there's a larger company uh, with greater financial resources, with greater clinical and commercial resources than a small company like Reviral could ever have, and a passion and a, and a commitment to see this through to the end and bring it to market, um, that to me is an alternative approach that as a small company like Reviral, we need to seriously consider. And when we initially started talking to Pfizer, we knew they obviously, I mean, Pfizer is probably the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. They've got more resources than a small company like Reviral could ever have. They cl clearly have far greater, in order of magnitude, larger commercial and, and, and more importantly, sort of clinical resources. So we felt that they could probably get those products to market faster than we could as a standalone company. At the time as well, the capital markets weren't great. And so we realized it was going to be a challenge to raise the amount of capital that we needed to do it on our own. But I think for us, really, the tipping point was was just the passion and the the excitement and the enthusiasm that we saw amongst the senior leaders at, at, at Pfizer, just how passionate they believed that what they did with COVID, um, they could do with RSV. They already had a strong uh, vaccine program for RSV, but they didn't have the therapeutics. And I think one thing that COVID taught them with their combination of a COVID vaccine and a COVID treatment in Paxlovid, I think they realized that you really needed that sort of full complement. And so we saw just a, a commitment in Pfizer that we had not seen in other larger companies. And in the end, that's really, I think, which was the tipping point that um, allowed us to finalize that deal as you mentioned, which closed in uh, in June of 2022 last year. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, really unique insight into an acquisition um, that you had personal experience with. You know, I think this theme of M and A is always hot in in the realm of biotech. You know, particularly as we enter 2023 in a pretty established down market for the industry. So, apologize in advance for the the rather rather difficult or slightly impossible question, but. We'd love to hear how you're thinking about, you know, the industry going into this new year and what some trends may or may not be in the M&A from an M&A perspective, given, you know, some of the dry powder that exists at these larger players and, and the continued explosion of innovative science, but a particularly challenging capital raising environment and public. Yeah. Market. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I think given all the facts that you just described them, Quran, I think it's fairly easy, although again, I'm not a uh, I'm, I'm not a fortune teller, so I can't predict the future, but I think it's a fairly easy bet to say that in 2023, pharma M&A will, will heat up. And I say that for a number of reasons. The first is, is that um, access to capital is not what it was in, in, in 2021. I think a lot of these companies are, a lot of these smaller companies are operating on six, nine, 12 months of cash, have equally as uh, um, compelling compounds that we had at Reviral, but simply because of the challenging capital markets are having a difficult time raising additional funds. 
And that lack of runway is obviously having a, 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 an impact in terms of depressing their, their share price. So I think you've got many companies out there that are trading at you know, 20, 20% of what they were trading at at their all-time high. Um, and, and really not much has changed in terms of the compelling nature of the assets that, that, that they're developing. And so I think that this will be a really interesting time for pharma. Many of these pharma companies are now flush with excess cash from the COVID pandemic. I think that Pfizer itself is probably sitting on $100 billion of cash um, that they weren't sort of anticipating pre-COVID. And I think that that cash needs to get put to work. And so you, you've got uh, compelling assets with distressed sort of prices. I think it's natural to think that some of the early signs of a strong M&A year in 2023, my, my prediction is that that's only going to continue for the reasons that I and, and, and you mentioned at the outset. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll we'll have to wait and see, but certainly would spell a, a more optimistic story for the industry. You know, I've really enjoyed the conversation across all the different inflection points of your career. Here at LifeSide B, we hope to reach individuals across the spectrum in the industry when it comes to their career timelines, with a particular emphasis on a younger audience, maybe charting their path in the world of life sciences. So throughout your career experience, you've clearly led various teams driving innovation forward in this industry. We'd love to hear about any lessons you've learned within the sector and advice you would give to those looking to become leaders in early to mid-stage biotechnology companies. Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's it's a really, really good question. And as I as I sort of think back over my own career, you know, the 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 irony and I and I and I now know why the irony exists, but the irony is that as I've progressed in my career, I have learned more and more along the way. As I've learned more and more along the way, I realize how little I actually know. And I think what that's done is that has instilled in me a sense of humility that there is always a better perspective. There's always a better answer that's out there than the one that exists in your, in your own mind. And having the humility to sort of seek that out in others, I think is, is just an incredible um, skill that, that is difficult to have in young in your career. And I, speak from personal experience. When I graduated from, from HBS, I don't think I had more than 10 humility cells in, in, in my body, right? I thought I could conquer the world. And I thought that if I wasn't a CEO five years post-business school, that I couldn't show my face at my fifth year, um, at my fifth year reunion. Um, but I think what I've sort of learned along the way is the more I've learned, the more I realize how little I know. And I think that has just instilled in me a sense of humility that has enabled me, which I think really leads to my second point, which is, has, I wouldn't say it's enabled, it's required me, it's forced me to find those answers in other people that I truly believe are, are, are smarter than me. And I talked a lot about that was the reason that I joined Reviral and that the, the people there were just, in, you know, orders of magnitude smarter than I was, and I could learn so much from them. And so I think that, you know, having that humility is going to force you to hire people that are smarter than you. And if you can have a leader of an organization that truly believes that the people that he's surrounded with are smarter 
than him and is open and willing to listen to alternative points of view, the, the, what can come out of those rooms and what can come out of those strategic planning sessions are, are, are some of the most sort of powerful things I've, I've ever seen observed in organizations that, that possess that type of culture. Or I, or I would say more importantly, um, in organizations in which the CEO possesses those types of characteristics and qualities. Absolutely. I think a, a great message to to all our audience members out there. And certainly there's there's always more to learn when it comes to uh, science, clinical medicine, and, and the biotech industry. I really appreciate you joining us here on LifeSide Beat. Thanks so much for your time, and I'll see you in class. Yep. Happy to help. Thanks so much for the time.